Welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I'm joined by Mike Edison, who's the author of Sympathy for the Drummer, Why Charlie Watts Matters. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, man. Glad to be here. Awesome. Yeah, this is great. I uh, I am lucky enough to have met Charlie Watts, so this is a really cool episode that I've, I've wanted to do kind of a... We're, we're going to talk about a little bit about him as a person, but also you were telling me just kind of how rock and roll has changed over the years. And, 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 and really, you're going to tell us why Charlie Watts matters. Charlie Watts is the guy. Charlie Watts is the, uh, you know, the guy that drives that car. I think he's the only guy that all the other Rolling Stones can, can agree on that they all get along with. Uh, no yeah. Charlie Watts, no Rolling Stones. He has said it many, many times. You know, that is uh, the key to their sound is is his rhythm is his drums he's um very uh what you uh, an autodidact you know you know when mm-hmm. i when i was when i was coming up when i was playing the drums and i like everybody else i think of my age i was listening to black sabbath led zeppelin and a lot of 50s rock and roll too but the stones were confounding i mean even the kids i knew who were playing along with rush and saying oh man this is where it's at uh, it never moved me first because you can't dance to it so forget sure. that um yeah. but also you could learn to play like neil Peart. You could learn a John Bonham part. You could learn, you know, the tricky triplets and the and, and the tricky bass drum parts. But to play like Charlie Watts, you couldn't learn. There's a poetry in there. He swung the band so hard, but he did all these counterintuitive things, opening up the hi-hat in places that you wouldn't imagine. Uh, he had kind of a flawed technique, which he sort of made his greatest asset. So to try to learn to play like Charlie Watts, it was kind of like learning to learning to write poetry you couldn't just learn it it wasn't a trick it was something that you had to fully commit to and you just had to live with it and, and, yeah. and breathe it it was much much different so when people ask me how long did it take you to write this book i usually say 45 years <laughs> <laughs> yeah you've been studying your whole life i mean you hit the nail on the head by saying that he's not like these guys who are the mega drummers who were you know they're they're just known for their insane chops that like you said, you can learn. I mean, Charlie is, is, is his own style. I mean, he's his own kind of drummer, similar to Ringo. Yeah. Ringo is great. And you know, when I was coming up, people would say, ah, he doesn't do anything I couldn't do after two lessons, which is just ridiculous. Ringo and people who've read my other books know I'm not the biggest Beatles fan in, in the world, but the guy has got incredible touch, incredible feeling. Um, the way he yeah. plays part of it's because he's you know southpaw playing on a righty kit so it's hard to duplicate but hey let me ask you this so the beatles break up and they start making solo records they can call anybody in the world they want and they all call ringo what does that say about the dude <laughs> yeah that's very true i mean you can't learn that stuff um so i'd be very interested in maybe starting off with uh hearing a little bit about charlie's upbringing i don't know much about that so i think it'd be good to know you know where this where this guy came from. Well, uh, the book, Sympathy for the Drummer, Why Charlie Watts Matters, uh, it's not a typical biography in any sense. It's more kind of like a, a gonzo rush. It's sort of a wide-eyed appreciation. So the biography part sort of goes like he was born and then he was in the Rolling Stones. <laughs> um, I mean, I didn't want to tell a story of him growing up in sure. war England, and we've kind of heard this. But uh, yeah, he was an art student, and Charlie Watts would have been successful you know, even if he didn't join the Rolling Stones. In fact, I would say they need him more than he's ever needed them. He was a yeah. commercial artist, a graphic designer. You know, he still designed some of the large stages or helps in the design of some of the large stages and some of the stuff they do now. Um, and the 75 tour, that whole Lotus stage, that was his idea. Uh, you know, he, he's an artist at heart. Um, Charlie came up, uh, you know, listening to jazz. That was the era. Um, People forget this was a pre-rock and roll era when he was a kid, and he heard the song 
Walking Shoes, uh, I think it's a Jerry Mulligan Quartet, Chico Hamilton on drums, and it's played on brushes. It's very suave. It's very cool. It's it's more roll than rock. And that also is the continued uh, secret to their success of the Rolling Stones. It's more roll than rock. They're the Rolling Stones. Hmm. They're not the Rocking Stones. And <laughs> people forget that in the equation of rock and roll, roll is always the most important part. That's the sexy part. That's the adult part. That's the jazz. Yeah. I always say yeah. any 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 kid can rock. You know, Metallica rocks. Charlie Watts rolls. You know, yeah. it's the swing, and it has to do with you know anticipation and not hitting that point of climax too quickly. I know you have a lot of young listeners, so um, we'll keep that metaphor to a minimum. <laughs> but that's what it's about. You don't want to sure. climax on the first note, and Charlie knows that it's about anticipation and and and, and really that's how you create tension in a song. And there's another myth too that Charlie Watts some sort of metronome, which is, uh, you know, it's just nonsense because there's hardly a Rolling Stone song that ends at the same speed it begins. This is something that, yeah. you know, people who aren't drummers say about drummers, oh, he's a metronome, or you're supposed to keep steady time. It's not really quite true. You know, you can pull back a little bit when you need to, but you can definitely push the choruses. You can totally push the end of a song. Uh, you know, John Bonham did it all the time. John Bonham slows down in Crashmere for instance, yeah. which is yeah. incredible without seeming like it's dragging. It's just apropos. So uh, Charlie Watts, though, has such a feeling, and like we're talking about Chops and Neil Peart and all these other cats and all these prog rock guys, with Charlie Watts, what's the most obvious thing um, is that it comes from his heart, not from his hands. I mean, he can certainly play. There's no question about it. But he's not doing, you know, quadruple rotom cues on his rototoms. That's not what this is about. You know, this is very simple. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got the swing. Yeah, that's so funny. And it's the slowing down, I think, is like you're right where it's it's sometimes like people think you need to be perfect. But like there's they just they weren't recording to a click then. And his his feel was so important. And there's some recordings, there's some stone songs where like they would overdub a tambourine and the tambourine is like a half second, like a like a couple milliseconds off from the snare consistently. Like everything is just kind of a natural like. It, it feels more organic than super polished music. And I think that's that that's the blues. That's well, the role. There like are so said. many things on Rolling Stones records that in more polished professional corporate organizations, you know, bands, you know, would consider mistakes, would never make it onto the final product. There are a million mm-hmm. like flubbed little ghost notes and places where he's trying to catch up to Keith or, or, <laughs> or you know, I mean, there's so many places where Keith hits that note and Charlie starts off behind the beat. We, I listened to um, uh, some stone stuff with Kenny Aronoff, uh, a buddy of mine. I worked, helped him out on, yeah. on his book. Uh, Kenny, of course, first call, you know, studio drummer and uh, sure. he currently with uh, John Fogarty, but has played with everyone from the Rolling Stones and, and on Charlie Watts solo records to, hmm. um, I mean, you know, the story. I mean, everyone in the world has played with Kenny yeah. Aronoff. Um, and we listened to some stuff together, which was a great treat. And Kenny is an incessant uh, charter. He loves to write everything down. Kenny is uh, conservatory trained. And you know, here's a guy like a metronome. Boy, his, his time is mm-hmm. impeccable. And we listened to the intro to Hang Fire, just by example. We listened to a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, Kenny, what is going on here? And he goes, oh, it's, it's incredible because he puts three accents all in the wrong places and he speeds up. And this is only in two bars of music. The song hasn't even started yet. <laughs> and he says, man, you know, you know, I can't believe they, you know, that got onto the record. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, he, he was in awe. But he's like, no one would ever let me play like that. If I played like no. that, I'd get fired. Yeah. Yeah, but it's the very thing that makes the Rolling Stones so special. Absolutely. Do you know, so like, 
not to go too far into the biography side, but how did Charlie get into drumming? Was he just like, he drummed as a kid and took lessons? And Alice Eddie, you heard the jazz on the radio. He's a big jazz fan. This is very important. Yes. He's basically a jazz drummer. He always wanted it. Playing in a blues band was perceived as a step down. He was playing um, some modern jazz, meaning like Thelonious Monk and like this, in a little trio and coffee shops and whatnot. Um, and occasionally the British blues scene in, in you know, in the uh, early 60s, um, and, you know, playing with, you know, guys that you knew with John Mayall. He wasn't playing with John Mayall, but the people that were on the scene were the guys that became into the pretty things and became Fleetwood Mac and later became the Faces and, and you know, all these cats, Jimmy Page, et cetera, et cetera, all these people on the early British uh, blues scene. But Charlie was a, a jazz cat. You know, he didn't mm-hmm. really like tawdry rock and roll. He really wasn't into Elvis or Chuck Berry until Keith Richards and Brian Jones kind of sat him down with it. Um, but what made him play the drums, like I said, was the song, uh, it's uh, Chico Hamilton on the drums and then a flamingo by Earl Bostic. He always mm. says was another early favorite, which is almost more R and B than jazz, but it's a really, really sexy, uh, swinging saxophone part. And Charlie was a kid. He took the neck off of a banjo and got some wire brushes and used the banjo as, as a drum head and wow. just began playing along until his dad bought him a proper drum set. Um, obviously awesome. he's a natural, but you know, what's crazy is if you listen to the Rolling Stones over the course of their career, um, when they started out, they were you know, a talented cover band. They had a great sense of playing the blues and playing the Chicago blues, Slim Harpo and Jimmy Reed, you know, and stuff like this, Muddy Waters, obviously. Um, but Charlie was playing pretty minimally. And then things began to open up later. It's, it's pretty cool because, you know, most drummers arrive kind of, kind of already formed. When you heard John Bonham on the first Led Zeppelin record, that was the John Bonham you were going to get for the next nine years. I mean, obviously, he, he grew creatively with the band, but a lot of that stuff was already in place. His technique was formed. Keith Moon was already a lunatic on the very first Who record. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, technology changes, the band grows, and styles change. But that was the guy. With Charlie, by the time you got to uh, – Give me shelter, you know, you know, on the record, let it bleed. And he started playing street fighting, man. Things were opening up a lot. You know, yeah. his style had changed. Um, and if you hear him play Jumping Jack Flash on the single, it's very minimal. And if you heard him play it just a few years later, he was finding space within the space. He was finding places to express the jazz and do those things that make me insane. Like where he opens up the hi-hat, the, you know, counterintuitive place. And it really... It just jerks the song the right way. It just really swings. And you can't anticipate it. You can't copy it. You can't learn it. it, it it's, just, it's, it's poetry. You know, and that's the very difference yeah. from jazz. I mean, it's, it's, it's improvised. There's something about, and I have a buddy of mine who's a guitarist and a singer, and I played in a band with him forever, who he'll play the drums, but he'll do, it's exactly like you're describing where obviously Charlie Watts is on a little bit higher of a level than my my friend Gordy, but um, where he opens the hi-hat in a certain place that as a trained drummer, I would never do ever. And it's like a thing where I'm like, man, I would never think about that. And 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 Charlie does that as well. And just these like this certain way of playing that's very like, I don't know. It's just like a, it's not showy. It's not flashy. And And I think it's important to say through all of this, and even in my brief experience meeting him, he is the most humble, least like pretentious guy you could ever meet in your life. Almost to the point where like, from what I understand, he just, he doesn't really want to talk about the stones. He knows he's no. in the stones. He's, yeah. He's I, not, he's over know, it. Well, I, I didn't, uh, you know, talk to the guys um, before I did this book. And honestly, I'm glad I didn't. I made a perfunctory, um, you know, request to, 
talked throwing stones, you know, and Mosser individually. Um, sure. Charlie has a hardcore no interview policy. I mean, the only yeah. times Charlie's ever really given interviews um, since the 60s um, was when he was working on his jazz band. And mm-hmm. I say, you know, he went on TV with his jazz band because I think, honestly, he had the same fear every other jazz musician in the world has, is that you're going to get to the club and the only person there is going to be your wife and your best mate. <laughs> because there's no one yeah. wants to come see a jazz band no. and yeah. he decided I better get on TV and promote this because otherwise yeah, he doesn't want to talk about it I mean he'll yeah. talk to you about um, big bad drummers and bebop drummers all day long but he certainly doesn't want to talk about the Rolling Stones and um, you know I, I've heard you know that they, they dig the book the people in the, sto- the Stones and the Stones organization and I was kind of like really? Because you'd think they'd be kind of tired of reading about themselves by now. And I was told, well, you wrote about Charlie. And they actually all like him. You're the only guy that figured it out. Write a book about Charlie. And while I didn't um, run towards the sex and drugs, I didn't stay away from it either. It's part of the story, of course. the big part of the Rolling Stones story. But this isn't, um, you know, know, some some hyper-sensationalized, you know, symphony of yellow drug journalism like, you know, like so many rock and roll books are. This is actually a book about the music. And yeah, there's yeah. plenty of sex and drugs, but it is really about the music. Yeah. you. I want to pause there because you made a very good point and I, I should have done it earlier, but uh, just to give a shout out to the uh, to our mutual friend, Don McCauley, who is, uh, works with Charlie Watts as his drum tech and does all kinds of stuff and is just, a, he's in the Stones crew. Um, he sent me a note. As you said, the people on the crew love the book because it's about Charlie. Let me read what Don said. Um about the book. He said, what pulled me into the book right away was how Mike described the current happenings in the pop and arts culture throughout the world in parallel with the era that Charlie's coming up as a young designer and inspiring drummer. He really draws out the connection of how Charlie and his mates live as trendsetters through the world of rocker, beatnik and jazzers still to this day. It's a great read and it's not just for drummers. So that's from Don McCauley, who again is just a well, I'm, I'm awesome flattered guy. because, I mean, Don, aside from being Charlie's tech, works with some of the best drummers in the world and yes. is a real student of the art form. Yes. Um, you know, uh, it, which is, you know, it's a shame for any musician. I mean, drummers, I don't know, maybe, maybe more than other cats, I'm not quite sure, but have lost track of where it all comes from. And this is why it's Charlie Watts is so important because the Rolling Stones, even today with the show, their touring show that they're bringing out, they are the only band that exists that still can connect directly, connect the dots. They connect that, that hot blue spark of electricity, I like to call it, that goes from Muddy Waters and Marvin Gaye and James Brown and Bo Diddley, you know, right up to the now because mm-hmm. they're the last one standing. They're the only guys they learned literally by playing with Bo Diddley and watching Little Richard every night. They learned literally sitting at the feet of Howling Wolf. Yeah. You know, they learned it hardcore yeah. and – one reason Charlie Watts is so great is because he understood that some of this blues music that a lot of, when I was growing up, a lot of, you know, my friends who had like, you know, I mean, I don't even call, they're not even like drum sets or like furniture stores, <laughs> you know, with 400 drums and gongs <laughs> yeah. and, you know, yeah. wind chimes and, and, and Lord knows what, you know, I can only yeah. wonder where all that stuff is now. <laughs> um, yeah, really. You know, it, you know, and they just sort of say this blues is so easy to play. And I'm like, yeah. And people tell me pizza is easy to make. <laughs> It's only got three ingredients, so how do you screw it up? And yet there's so much bad pizza in the world. You oh, know? man, that's so and true. And all these cats who had no problem playing along, you know, with, you know, four sides of a Rush album, um, but couldn't swing a shuffle beat or play a punk rock beat without tripping over themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's so true. You can't, it's again, you you can't teach this stuff. And 
you said it before, and I don't think it should be skipped over about how the stones were raised in like post World War II, if not towards the end of World War II, uh, England. And that is like, I mean, it was bombed out, you, right? That people that can't imagine to, that. And I imagine dropping bombs on New York City. This is people living in London. And, yeah. and Nazis are dropping bombs from airplanes on the city. You know, yeah. America, we war is something that happens happens elsewhere. Yeah. You know, people you know don't really. understand what it must like to be hearing the air raid sirens going off and then playing, you know, growing up as a kid playing in the rubble of a demolished building. That has to shape a little bit of your psyche growing up. And obviously they I think <laughs> I mean they came out they came out great. But I always think of the Stones as being um like we mentioned the Beatles, just like a little bit more like I kind of think of them as parallel bands in a way, but just being a sure. more raw version. Just if if you have both of those, Beatles are more polished, Stones are more raw. And and I think just the sound, the drumming and, and I know they they you know they were friends and all that stuff, but uh it's just more rock and roll. Well you know the Beatles, when they started, of course, were a rock and roll band, very sure. pure, playing in Hamburg, um, yeah. you know, playing, you know, six sets a night and taking mm-hmm. lots of amphetamines to get through it. And, you know, uh, and, you know, they looked terrific. And they were another jacket kind of rock and roll band playing Little Richard. And, you know, I think they were more into rockabilly and uh, sun sounds. And, of course, they were very into Elvis and Carl Perkins, whereas the Stones, you know, gravitated immediately toward urban black music you know, Chicago blues and all the cats that were in Chicago, of course, came up through Mississippi and they idolized Bo Diddley and Slim Harpo and Jimmy Reed. They especially fetishized and his drummer, Earl Phillips, who's one of the great unsung heroes of the story, Earl Phillips, who, um, you know, if you listen to Jimmy Reed, it's, and he only, he's only got like two songs and two rhythms and yet it's so mesmerizing. And Brian Jones and Keith just sat Charlie Dunson. You got to listen to this cat. It's so simple, but there's an anticipation to it. You know, yeah. it always sounds, there's always a sort of, mm, that sort of like makes your heart kind of, kind of palpitate just a little bit, even on the slow songs, because he doesn't always land where you think it's going to. And Charlie yeah. heard the jazz of that. He heard, you know, a, a purity of, of, of fluidness. I heard the poetry in it, where I think a lot of guys, like I said, all the idiots that I grew up with, you know, kind of just poo-pooed <laughs> as, you know, old cats who didn't really know how to play, but it's jazz. And Charlie heard that. And Earl Phillips also went on to play um, some of Howlin' Wolf's greatest songs, like Johnny Hooker, these one chord songs, no changes. They're just hypnotic, mesmerizing. Yeah. You know, songs yeah. like, you know, Sm- Smokestack Lightning or Back to Our Man or 44, um, you know, all these Howlin' Wolf songs. Um, the other great drummer, of, of, of course, uh, coming out of uh, Chicago is Fred Below, who Charlie Watts said he owes his career to. Wow. And he's the guy who was the house drummer at uh, Chess Studios, Chess Records in Chicago. Yeah. Played on most of Chuck Berry's hits, played on a lot of Muddy Waters records, played on a lot of Howlin' Wolf records. And this is a guy, he was, he was also a jazz drummer who kind of settled back into playing blues because when he, uh, his career really got started, jazz had kind of gone out of style and blues was the thing to play if you were uh, an African-American in Chicago at the time. And Charlie said as recently as a couple years ago when the Stones did their blues record, he goes, I owe it all to Fred Below. Man, he's got such a deep knowledge of all these jazz guys. And and Don yeah. has put it before, like talk, describing him, he said, Charlie's a jazzer. And I just even love that term of calling him a jazzer because it's such a classic. It's like saying a rocker, but a jazzer. Like <laughs> there's no denying that the guy is just a jazz. Uh, do you think he obviously he loved playing with the Stones and had all the success. But do you think it's probably an unanswerable question, but I wonder if he, maybe later on, he probably enjoyed doing his jazz projects 
passionately more than, you know, going out and playing with the stones. Cause that's his upbringing. Well, you know, I don't want to say he liked it better or not. He's not no, here to yeah. ask him and there are two different pieces, but there's a, obviously a reason why he does it. I love, you know, I think, I think it's indisputable that Charlie Watts of all the Rolling Stones is the only one that's put out solo records that are beyond criticism. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Like meaning that like, you know, you, you listen to what I mean is, listen, you know, the Rolling Stones really broke up over Mick Jagger's solo career because he, thought, yeah. because he, you know, has had this lifelong crush on David Bowie and thought he could be that guy, but he can't <laughs> yeah. be. I mean, God gave him the Rolling Stones, but exactly. you know, who are perfectly capable of making bad pop records. They've done lots. Of yeah. Them. So why would he want to go out and do it on his own? And what Keith said, Hey, look, buddy, if you want to go do Irish lullabies with Liberace, you know, you've got my blessing. Do something that the Rolling Stones can't do. But if you want to yeah. go out and play in a rock band or a pop band, you know, what's wrong with you? You've already got the best one in the world. And yeah. so Mick Jagger makes a couple of solo records, or I mean, who knows how many there are now, they're, that no one wants and no one cares about. Uh, Keith's records are very well intended. The first one's pretty good. But, yeah. you know, I, honestly, after listening to it, you kind of wonder why you're not listening to the Rolling Stones. It's so similar. You can't get away from it. It sounds like the Ron Stones. Wood has made a couple of cool little records. Um, yeah. Give me some next pretty cool record. Doesn't hurt that Charlie Watts plays the drums on almost the whole thing. Um, and he but, paints. Ron Wood paints and all that stuff. But uh, but after listening to a Ron Wood record, you're kind of wondering why aren't I listening to the Rolling Stones or the Faces? Yeah. You know. Yeah. But with Charlie Watts, he's playing in a jazz band. And yeah. no, it's not Charlie Parker, and it's never going to be you know Max Roach's quartet. But it's really likable. And it's not intended to be anything besides that. You know, it's it's not the Rolling Stones. It's something he cannot do within the confines of the Rolling Stones. He's following a different muse, and therefore it's beyond criticism. I feel like he, it comes off very clearly, that, and it's a great thing that he doesn't really, he's doing it for his own happiness. He's doing it for himself instead of being like, I'm going to be, you know, the same, I'm going to be, I'm going to go off on my own and, and get all the glory. It's like, I think he's, scratching an itch that he has where he wants to be in a jazz band and, well, and everyone likes that. Well, that's, that's the you know, big, big shortcoming of Mick Jagger is that, you know, I mean, he said you know, at some point I want to be bigger than the stones. Uh, and, you know, he said, that's not, you know, that's not possible, you know, and yeah. you know, to the point of like, you know, he's pulling a gun on a singer. I'm sure um, <laughs> that would be the key style, but it almost broke. The yeah. like, How can you be bigger than that? Why would you want to be? And I think Mick's relationship is with his ego and with the audience. Keith's relationship is with the music of the band, like Charlie's is, yeah. which is the priority. The priority is the music, not the stardom, not yeah, the celebrity. Really. Hmm. Now, can we take it back a little bit and talk about, um, so as sort of like Don mentioned it in his quote that I read, but like talking about them as like not, not just fashion, but just icons, where does Charlie fall into all of that? You got Mick Jagger being the lead man, but how was Charlie seen in that in, in the band? You know what I mean? Was he a fashion icon and all that good stuff too? Well, Charlie has great taste. As I say in, in the book, not only was he like pouring over the pages of Downbeat to look at you know all the drummers and read, read about them, he was also checking out what they were wearing. And here's a guy that shows up to a gig, you know, impeccably wearing, you know, a suit. And now he's very famous for wearing his Savile Row suits and, you know, and bespoke tailored, um, uh, you, know, you know, clothing. I mean, he, yeah. he looks wonderful. I mean, I mean, you can't really play a Rolling Stones set in a suit, but when you see, see Charlie Watts, I mean, there's a reason why he went from being on best drummers list to best dressed list. Yeah, I mean, and you know, and you know, Mick might wear. You never know what kind of frock he's going to show up in. You know, I mean, Mick wears capes and football yeah. uniforms, and you know, and it's okay. And, you know, it's okay. They're rock stars. Um, yeah, 
and Charlie is, you know, is also sitting behind the drums. I think that's enough of a statement. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's okay. Everybody in a band, this is why we have bands, right? We yeah. play to our strengths. Um, Charlie Watts is a solo act. Mick Jagger thought he could be, but he was wrong. Um, they have the Rolling Stones and everybody contributes. And it's a magical thing when you have four guys who are so not interchangeable, not replaceable when one plus one equals five, when mm-hmm. the, the whole is so much greater than the sum of the parts. That's, that's a formula you don't want to be fooling around with. It doesn't yeah. happen that often. You know, I mean, no. every band, you always know, you always know who the guy is, who's the mercenary. I mean, you've been in bands. So this this yeah. guy joined because he owned a PA. This guy, you know, had a van. He could drive us. This guy was the only guy who had a bass and was willing to come to rehearsal. But when you yeah. get four guys who really belong together, it's special. It's really special, um, and that's the Stones. Yeah. And that being said, I mean the Rolling Stones are Mick and Keith and Ron Wood now, and Charlie Watts most of all because Charlie Watts is not replaceable. Obviously, the guitar player, uh, the Ron Wood position, has been replaced a few times, but Ronnie is clearly one of them. Yeah, I think Mick Taylor wasn't really one of them. You know, I mean, I mean, he was great. And of course, that was probably the best era of the Stones. But I always compare him to like, you know, he's like the designated hitter, the power forward. You know, he's like some yeah. gaudy free agent you hire so you can win the championship <laughs> for a few seasons. But the truth is, he's not going to retire wearing that number. No. You know, no. that's that. Yeah. That's it. He's a mercenary. And he was amazing. But like, he quit the Rolling Stones because he thought he could do better. I mean, I mean he, no, you can't. <laughs> and I think Bill Wyman is one of the most un- you know, heralded musicians, bass players, really the most underrated cats in the history of this whole thing. And yeah. part of it's because the way the records are mixed and he's very much deep into the mix. It's not really a full, big, round Fender bass sound. And because yeah. Charlie doesn't play in the pocket the way a lot of other cats might, like, you know, Bonham and, and John Paul Jones played together more as a conventional rhythm section with mm-hmm. the bass and the drums very much, you know, in the pocket, like the meters, like Booker T and the MGs. Uh, like most uh, rhythm and soul bands, you know, learn to play that way. But Charlie's really playing with Keith, and Bill Wyman's job is sort of kind of to kind of ride herd over them. It creates what they call, and has been called, the wobble, right? Because Keith will start, and Charlie kind of chases him, which is how he's just a little bit behind the beat. And playing behind the beat is very important. That creates that anticipation. It gives you that great forward sense that you know that that sense of urgency. Um, yeah. without going over the line. Because once you cross the line, it's very difficult to come back. Um, <laughs> and you have Bill Wyman, who, whose parts are wonderful and complex, but they're not overblown and they're mixed down close to the guys. Um, you know, So the whole thing kind of just gels. He's a little bit ahead of the beat. Charlie's a little bit behind. Bill's really right on top of it. And that's a very unique thing. Other bands' rhythm sections don't function that way. And if you know you listen to the best of the Rolling Stones, especially starting in the late 60s through you know the great period of the early 70s, and but even through, I mean, Some Girls, which is its own masterpiece, yeah. you hear all these things. And by the way, by the time Some Girls came out, this is 1978, the Stones started in 1963 about, Charlie Watts is a completely different drummer mm-hmm. at this point. He is opening and closing the hi-hat in very bizarre places. They're playing punk rock, or what's supposed to be punk rock, respectable, and Whip Comes Down. Um which is really just very pure rock and roll. They're all two chord songs and a lot of twang, a lot of Chuck Berry, a lot of country in them. But to listen to him playing the drums, it, it, it's incredible. Like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> what just happened? And yet, you know, it just, just moves along. They yeah, weren't playing absolutely. punk rock in the sense that the Sex Pistols 
and the Ramones or the Clash were playing punk rock, all of whom had great rhythm sections and sure. were very effective in what they did. This is sort of more of like what the Rolling Stones thought punk rock should be like. You know? Yes, more of the attitude. Of, of punk rock yeah I mean, you, know? you know people forget you know listen I'm, I'm i'm an old guy and i came up with all the punk rock and people forget that you know it, it was attitude and it was music and and yeah it's hard to play because mm-hmm. it's hard to play like the ramones it's nearly impossible to play like that i th- yeah. think you know i may be the only person in history who's ever called the ramones virtuosos and it was just a, i very very rarely give drum lessons but um since we're all in lockdown i've been giving some uh online drum lessons to some of my friends kids just to yeah. keep, keep them their hands busy. <laughs> um, but I always show them the Ramones and say like, you know, this is it. One, two, three, four. That's the lesson. But look how hard it is to do with precision, with effectiveness, with drive. You know, mm-hmm. there are a million yeah. bands I know that can do it, but I only know one who ever did it good enough. That's a great example of a band that's on the surface is like, oh, anyone could do that. And it's like, well, no, Piffle. not, not, not at all. You it, know, there's, it, there's it, so it, much to it. It's nearly impossible. So, yeah, but the punk rock thing, you know, it was not something that a bunch of millionaire rock stars who were, which is why they recorded that record. They're being accused of being bloated. They're being accused of being drugged out. Uh, they're accused of being disconnected from what's really happening in the street because they are rock stars. They are the old guard. They've become, uh, you know, they're the corporation. They've become part of the problem, not the solution. And they yeah. take it to heart and very well they should. And they come out with this record with songs like Respectable and Whip Comes Down. And the thing is, punk rock was never about money. Punk rock was about having no money. So yeah. there's only a certain yeah, really. degree to which the Stones are going to relate, but they played so good. They came, they answered the call with such energy and such brio, you know, and such vivacity and such venom. And it was like the sleaziest lyrics they ever came up with. And what's also important to note too, is that's the record that had Miss You on it, right? So they're playing mm-hmm. punk rock. And they're also, their biggest hit, a disco song at a time when a lot of rock and roll fans, I don't know if you recall, um, there was a, the disco sucks movement. Yeah, they hated disco at the time. Yeah. A lot of people hated disco music out of hand for, for various reasons. And I've, you know, it's very you know trendy, of course, in certain intellectual circles to say that the disco anti-disco movement, the disco sucks movement, um, was based on homophobia and xenophobia mm-hmm. because you know it had such it had strong African American, Latino, and gay roots. But I, I think honestly, um, the people in the Midwest were getting disco or getting a watered down version, and basically you just had a bunch of littered Skittered fans and Ted Nugent fans who didn't <laughs> want to wear gold chains and wear these clothes because their girlfriends told them to. Yeah. And by that point, disco was over anyway because the music had become bad. But the Rolling Stones were into black dance music way ahead of the curve. They were listening to black, great black dance music in, you know, in the early 70s before you know, it had hit you know, the, the mainstream of America. Man. I mean, don't forget, they, they, they knew Marvin Gaye. They were there. They, they played with James Brown. So for them to play disco, it was just an extension of what they were already doing. It wasn't like Pink Floyd says, hey, let's put a disco beat onto our record because, you know, some, some suit told us to. And yeah, it worked. They had a big hit. But Exactly, yeah. You know, no, and it's it, going disco. I mean, ugh, yuck. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it makes me think, too, that like, it's just the term disco. Like, Miss You is such a great song. And if you didn't. It just, like, yes, it is disco, but like if all that other disco didn't exist and that was what disco was, then everyone would love disco. If that makes sense. If you right, didn't have all the watered you, down you know, your crap. disco, you got to listen to the tramps, you know, you got to listen to disco inferno. You got to, you know, yeah. you know, listen to earth, wind and fire and all the really great black dance music that is definitely qualifies as disco, but yeah. all the stuff that came before, um, the Bee Gees and Staying Alive. And Staying Alive is a great song, but yeah. that whole era sort of brought it into the shopping mall. Mm-hmm. 
And no, like definitely. anything else, like punk rock, like like jazz, like like blues, like modern art, like hippie culture. The second someone realizes you can make money off of it, the mainstream, some corporation is just going to co-opt it. Right. Yeah. And it, it happens yeah. every yeah. time. Hip hop was considered, you know, an outlier in, you know, music in the Bronx and, you know, something that was kind of like an underground, you know, practically avant-garde movement until someone realized you could sell soda pop with it. And it became embraced by corporations, you know, and, and they yeah. started writing big checks. That's the way it goes. It happened to um, punk rock, you know, more than once. Now, let me, um, I want to talk about some gear stuff. Two things. So obviously I want to talk about Charlie's drums, which are just sort of a unique setup, mm-hmm. the UFIP symbols and all that stuff. But but first, I've always been intrigued. Maybe it's my kind of engineer side of things, audio engineer side of things. I want to know about the mobile recording studio. <laughs> oh, that, that is a thing of such, I, I, I fantasize about having one of those, right? Yeah. I mean, what do you, can you share a little bit about it? I, I know that other bands, they lent it out and it would be like, Led Zeppelin's using it and it's at their, you know, estate and all this stuff. What, right. What's well, the deal with that? Yeah, it's not, it's not like an ice cream truck. You just drive up and, you know, and, and it's there. I mean, we're talking <laughs> no. about, it's, I think, what's the actual name of it? The Rolling Stones mobile recording. Uh, I, I mean, it is, it's like, it's a, it's a truck. It's a recording studio. And yeah, yeah Led Zeppelin uses, used it and um, if, because they led Zeppelin had a castle. <laughs> so yeah. you know, bring around the stones. Uh, you know, I think they used it. Um, you know, it's funny to say, oh, we recorded this at Mix House at Stargrove. Have you ever seen a picture of quote unquote Mix House? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like twice the size of Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, <laughs> you know? of course. <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, it's a little shack Mick has where they record yeah. a record. Um, I'm not a gear obsessive, but sure. I would love to take this to a place. We talked about to the UFIP symbols is Charlie's rediscovery of the China symbol. And yeah, I mean, you talk about it. this, and this is a little bit inside baseball, but even my non-drummer friends are like, oh shit, you know, I, I get it. You know, you're right. Because the China symbol was a thing that by the, you know, by the late seventies, you know, belonged in prog rock bands mostly, you know, yeah. it was guys with double bass drums hitting that thing. I call it the confetti cannon of, of the drum world. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. It's like, yeah. blah, 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 bang, bang, yeah. bang. and it's just sort of like an effect symbol. And Charlie Watts starts using it around the Some Girls time. And there's no precedent for this, for a straight-ahead rock and roll band to be using it. It did appear, China Symbols, in big band, um, an old-time jazz, like yeah. Dixieland era, when it was part of a guy's contraptions. And maybe exactly. drummers today don't even know that a drum set is called a trap set because it was contraptions. And if you, you know, look back and see you know, the guys playing with Count Basie or Louis Armstrong, you know, they'd have temple blocks and tam-tams and gongs, and you might see some weird... China symbol in there as well, as well as like a bicycle horn. You know, these are yeah. the contraptions. Yeah. And, yep. you know, thankfully, Charlie hasn't insisted on using a bicycle horn on every record. <laughs> but, the, but, the, Not yet. but the China symbol pops up and it sounds really cool. And if you start watching them in 1978, he's got two of them now because he has that swish knocker he keeps yeah, on, exactly. on, on the right, but that one on the left, and, and he just wangs it. And he just beats the living hell out of it. He uses it as a ride symbol, but it offers yet a new dimension in sound to something that had already been very established. So I think this is so great that Charlie Watts is still evolving to the point, I mean, it's all over. I mean, every record after some girls. Um, but even on their blues record, Blue and Lonesome, which they cut a few years ago, God, it was already spent more time than I think has passed since they cut that mm-hmm. record. Um, he's using a China symbol. Uh, like I said, previously, the realm of, you know, you know, the rushes and, you know, and yeses of the world on a Howlin' Wolf song and on these old Chicago blues songs. And it sounds great. And there's no precedent for it. Yeah. It's just like, okay, I've got this thing. I'm going to use it. And it, it sounds great. It's so Charlie. 
it's it's a it's a beautiful percussive piece of nuance that I don't think anyone else would have had. I think most engineers or producers would have said, "Get that thing out of here! What are you crazy?" He's like a trendsetter. He's effortlessly saying, "Let me bring in a china and a swish knocker, and uh, it's going to be great." But I, I bet if another drummer sat at his drums and played it, it wouldn't be as great as it is if charlie's doing it of course yeah. not because the sound is in your hands yeah you know i mean you know i mean talk to any you know i mean like you know Dwayne eddie used to always say the twang's not coming out of my guitar the twang is in my fingertips <laughs> yeah yeah that's so true and he uses the old speed king pedal and he's got the gretsch set up and and even the fact that we're just said before it was ufip which is an italian symbol brand which i'm working on doing an episode on ufip for everyone listening but um it even that how many drummers in america are using ufip symbols i mean it's i know their splashes are super famous and everyone likes to use those but um it's just and, very and that, fl- that flat italian ride that he you know allegedly yeah. found in like you know an alleyway that someone threw out that's become his main <laughs> symbol um and that's just the charlie watts sound I, the charlie watts snare drum sound oh, is something worth addressing yes. too yeah. and this is goes beyond the gear this has to do with the way it's recorded and the way it's been produced and there's a came a point, and I think it's like Tattoo You. This, I address this in sympathy for the drummer as well. When the drums on Tattoo You are so freaking loud and so sharp and percussive, they're practically overmodulating. Um, yeah. I would love to do. I'd love to have the conversation with you sometime. You know, <laughs> about like the greatest snare drum sounds of all time. And <laughs> that would I think be like, awesome. Um, you know, you know the Martha Reeves and the Vandella song "Nowhere to Run." I think that is like one of the great sounds. Later, I just found out they were they had some. They were using um chains, the kind you put on snow tires, oh my just God, to back really? it up, and that's why it sounds so good because it doesn't wow. sound like any other Motown record. And I mean, there's certain you know, obviously John Bonham's got this great sound, and there's just a few things like, wow, this sound is great. And Charlie Watts, so. This is one of the smart things they did. Chris Kimsey, uh, the engineer, and Bob Clearmountain and mixed it. They ran fr- from a mic, a mic that's Charlie's signal. And don't forget that a lot of that stuff on Tattoo was recycled. It was outtakes and odds and sods. Mm-hmm. Ran it through um, an amplifier, a guitar amplifier, in a bathroom and mic'd that and ran that back to the board. So it's wow. got this crazy trashy sound on it. It's very aggressive. I mean, it starts on uh, Start Me Up. Um, also, by the way, the greatest example of a Rolling Stones mistake, they start the song, you know, backwards on the one and the three, not the two and the four, and somehow managed to correct it the first two beats and, you know, turned up this colossal cock up into a bag of cash, which is exactly what they're so good at. Um, Man, I didn't, I didn't know that was like a, a mistake. I always thought that was just kind of a cool, like Charlieism. <laughs> they do, they do it a couple of times, you know, they, they do it on other songs. If you listen to get your yayas out, it's right at the beginning. He starts in, I think maybe he just can't hear it. He comes in on the wrong beat and has to sort of double up on the snare, on the snare of the bass drum to get it back to a, a normal two and four on the back beat. Um, I love that they keep it. And they keep it. And that's the version they keep, right? Yeah. <laughs> of yeah. course. Right. Cause, yeah. uh, um, Listen to, I, I think the introduction to Star Star on uh, um, It's Only Rock and Roll, it's got this weird, like, sort of blip, squib thing drum. I don't even know what the hell it is, but it's just wrong. Except it's so cool and sloppy and great. I couldn't imagine it lasting, you know, <laughs> making it to the final product and any other band's record. And yet there it no. is. And it's so cool. It's just, it's just so right. It's so them. But so the snare drum sound, though, gets really big and aggressive on Tattoo You. And like like the song Neighbors and and, and Hang Fire, it, it's really incredible. And every record after that, the snare drum just sort of keeps getting louder and louder. It seems. <laughs> I think they realized 
that even if they were making bad records, and they certainly made some very bad records, um, and they're making dirty works, and they weren't even all in the studio at the same time, and Keith is showing up at midnight and work until early in the morning, and you know, Mick's showing up at noon and leaving before Keith gets there, and no one's talking to each other, and it sounds yeah. like it. They're realizing that the drums are the thing that really signifies the sound of the Rolling Stones. Hmm. There's something about the way what Charlie Watts is doing, and if you listen to like their last rec- record of originals, um, uh, a bigger bang. The first song is that, that big, it's like this sped up drum roll where he's kind of catching up to the open chord that uh, Keith or Mick plays. It's the sound of Charlie. And it just keeps getting loud. On, on Voodoo Lounge, the, like the first five songs all start with Charlie Watts without the guitar. Yeah. Charlie, bop, boom, 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 boom. And Charlie has become sort of like the, the signifier of the band. You know, they so realize, funny, yeah. like, all of a sudden they realize what they've got. It took them a long time <laughs> to realize it, but it is the signal sound of the band. The most level-headed, least flashy guy in the band is, I mean, I would describe him, I'm sure everyone would, as the rock of the band. He's the guy that can get along with everybody. I'd say in the book, he's, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like he's the star of this British sitcom, you know, trying to keep the peace between like some cross-dressing you know singer and a drugged up pirate lead guitar player and he's the guy that kind of can, can bridge the differences between them yeah, with jack sparrow's dad basically. <laughs> now personal life wise charlie's been married for a really long time hasn't he yeah uh is to, to shirley and famously uh who we met before he was even in the stones wow. uh and you know i mean it's one of those People say it's a rock and roll love story because, I mean, look at everybody else. I mean, the way Mick Jagger spreads his seed, he's like the Captain Kirk of rock and roll. You know, he's got kids on every planet. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, and Keith Keith's has, Keith's a, a romantic and, you know, we know those stories, but Charlie got married and stayed married. And, uh, you know, by yeah. all accounts, you know, very happy and, you know, lovely, mutually supportive, wondrous relationship where they live out of the limelight on, on a farm. Hmm. Man, yeah, I met his granddaughter uh, briefly. She was walking around um, the backstage area at that show I went to, which again, I was like, this is what, where the hell am I? What's going on? That's <laughs> Charlie Watts' granddaughter. But um, he famously, and I don't know if you know a lot about this part to talk about, because uh, I guess he's pretty private about it to some degree. He's a famous collector. Yes. Um, and and our friend Don would know more about that. But yeah. he talked, Charlie talks about it because he's a, he's a drum nerd. Yeah, like like we all are, right? It's just of a matter course. of degree and budget, I guess. At, <laughs> yeah. at some point, he collect, yeah. he collects things. He collects Civil War memorabilia. Um, uh, he oddly collects old cars, but doesn't know how to drive. Um, he says <laughs> he doesn't know how to drive. Yeah, he never learned how to drive. Yeah, oh you, know, you live in a city. Sometimes people don't, right? Um, yeah, you're from London. Um, sure. I grew up in New York City. I, I mean, I do drive, but I know a lot of people who never learned because they live in New York City. I, I mean, I don't have a car. It's one of the great things about living in New York City. Well, and he's probably driven everywhere. You know what I mean? Oh, As a stone. He's not driving. But, but he's got, apparently, he's, you know, still has like a Model A, you know, <laughs> who's a was out in his backyard that he could sit yeah. in and start up, but he can't really take it anywhere. Man. Uh, but apparently his drum collection, I mean, he owns bits and pieces of, you know, famous drummer's collection going back to the you know, early jazz days. And I know he's thrilled when he gets, you know, hey, I just got one of Tony Williams cymbals or, you know, or, this, you know, he used to belong to Sid Catlett or Dave Tuff, some of his, you know, big band uh, mm-hmm. heroes. Um, it's weird. I personally don't fetishize drum equipment. You know, mm-hmm. I play, I play a yeah. Silver Sparkle uh, Ludwig Super Classic set, which to me is like the, you know, it's like the ultimate thing. And it's the only drum kit I've had. 
you know, forever and ever. And I don't really think about it. I fetishize guitars a lot more, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's you know? funny. Um, well, I mean, at some point to me, a floor tom-tom is a floor tom-tom. And, you know, I... You know, the funny thing is, I remember when I bought this set. This is the second drum set I ever owned, and I bought it in the late 80s. I, before that, I had this Rogers set, and I don't know why I bought it. Maybe it was on sale or something like that. Um, but I had sort of, it kind of, kind of beaten up, and I didn't have cases for it, and dragging it around New York when I was in a punk rock band. Um, it just it's gotten really, really beaten, and it needed, I needed a new kit. And I went to um, one of the better boutique drum shops in New York City, and I said, I really want, like, Green Sparkle. You know, I really 60s. I, I think I saw John Bonham playing that Green Sparkle Bloodwigs. I really, yeah, this is great. Sparkle. They said, "What are you nuts? No one wants that, kid. They don't make that anymore." And at the time, I just wanted to do the regular size drums too, meaning the conventional nine by thirteen tom or an eight by twelve tom. I think I ended up with a nine by thirteen and a ten by fourteen, and of course the sixteen times sixteen floor tom tom. But at the time in the eighties, power toms were the thing, and they were selling all these drums that were deeper. Right, and yeah. the normal kind of rock and roll conventional yeah, the huge ones, and they were like, you know, we don't make drums like this. You're like living in the past. You know what's wrong with you? So they called up Ludwig. They're nice. They said, oh, we can put together a set of all the old sizes, and we have enough silver sparkle to do one drum set. I said, that is great. That is perfect. And but within five years, everybody was playing sparkle drum sets. Of course, you know. Yeah. Now you can get champagne. You know, I used to love the Slingerland champagne sparkle. That's what I do to kind of, kind of lust after and fetishize a little bit. Is finishes more than you know the round badge, you know, Gretsch or you know certain eras. I mean, to me, drums need to be wood. They need to be maple, and they need to sound open and they need to sound good. I think the problem is most guys don't know how to tune their drums. Yeah, for sure. one thing, and it's some people just don't know how to record them, which which is the absolutely. Other. Yeah, and you know, and Charlie has been fortunate in, in both cases that he has you know. He knows what good drums are supposed to sound like, and he works with you know great engineers, the best guys in the world who know what the Rolling Stones drums should sound like. Yeah, and I think um, obviously Don being being the guy who's who's there with him, and I think and, and I think it's the same for like Keith, where a lot of their guys they've had their techs for a long time. Um, I know Keith has had his guy for forever, but um, it's just it's like a thing of just trusting people to take care of your equipment and all that stuff, and uh, and it's funny too because i was reading something that that again our friend don mccauley wrote earlier on a uh, speed king uh ludwig speed king um facebook page talking about how he goes through and looks for hairline cracks every day before the show on the three speed kings he uses to make sure that there's no problems i mean it's it's about thinking ahead that makes you on that level you have to and everything is about redundancy. I mean, how many, how many, how many bass drum pedals do you think they travel with? Um, how yeah. many drum sets? I mean, I, you know, I've got, I mean, I haven't played the drums uh, on a gig in a while. Just sort of, like, it's, I don't know. There's a time when I, I spent all my whole life playing the drums. I've been all over the world uh, playing these punk rock bands that kind of almost sort of made it. Um, but big enough that we played in Japan, we played in Paris, we played in London, opened up for the Ramones all over the world. I mean, we did a lot of great stuff. Um, but New York is a very unfriendly place for drummers. If you live in an apartment in New York City, forget about having a drum set. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm yeah. not even allowed to have a piano in my apartment. It's just too loud. Yeah, of um, course. And I started, I, started, I started playing guitar more and more, and, and it's working for me. But I always bring two guitars to a gig. I can't believe guys who bring one guitar to a gig, even to play a bar gig, you know, to play my local bar for, you know, 40 minutes. Because what happens if I break a string? I mean, knock on wood, it's happened once in 45 gigs. I don't break a lot of strings. But the one time you do... It's not fair to the audience. It's not fair to the no. other guys in the band. You put so much work into this thing. You look like an amateur. There. Hey, let the bass player tell a joke while I change the string or make a repair. No, man, you got to be ready. 
Oh, you know, I'm whether there are five that. people in that bar or whether there are 80,000 people in that stadium, that's just being a professional. Oh, you can't, you're at that level. You, you don't see them say, oh, can we stop? We need to restart because a snare head broke or something. I mean, literally there would be like a tech who would switch out the drum while between they're beats. playing between beats. I mean, <laughs> it's at such a high level that it's just insane and <laughs> like you imagine if charlie watts bass drum started slipping like you know like, i remember these gigs that we used to play they'd be playing you know at, it wasn't a cinder block or something in front of the bass drum or <laughs> you know or the the claw the yeah. thing they used to use didn't, didn't wasn't locked into the carpeting well enough and the oh, yeah. bass drum started slipping and i'd be pulling it back and that doesn't happen to charlie watts of course not no it doesn't how many hi-hat clutches do you, i mean do you think charlie's clutch ever slips like it ever opens up accidentally when he's playing miscue <laughs> no i think don's got that on on lock that's awesome. Well, before we wrap up and actually hear more about your books, your other books, any other fun, you know, Charlie information from the book? Any any key stuff you want to you want to hit on before we wrap well, it up? Well, I, I I think you know Charlie is a soldier and, he, and he's a gentleman, and I, I think you know he's 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 a warrior poet in, in the classic sense. And what I was saying before is really you know, you, you asked why does Charlie Watts matter? I think you know that's. I mean, obviously, the premise of the book, and, and I think anybody who gets into it sort of understands the poetry, but it's real simple. I mean, the guy can swing a battleship, you know? And if it <laughs> don't swing, it don't mean a thing. A lot of yeah. guys play h- harder, but no one really plays heavier, if you know what I mean, because sure. that swing is the thing. Like, you know, one thing we didn't touch on either is like how much swing there really is in like the early heavy drummers, something I'll have to talk about. If you listen to John Bonham, if you listen to the early Black Sabbath, I mean, it's obvious these, these guys are listening to Gene Krupa and Louis Belson and Buddy Rich and Max Roach, you know, and that's where they were learning from because they didn't have rock and roll to grow up on. They didn't have all this time. And, you know, for someone now to like say, hey, you know, it's really easy to play like the Rolling Stones, you know, think again. Think again. Think again. Yeah. This is, you're listening to a guy who learned literally sitting at the feet of the greatest bluesman in the world. And there's no one to replace it. Yeah. And you know, it's really amazing. If you go on YouTube and you look like how to play like Charlie Watts, you will find almost nothing because That's interesting. it's just yeah, I've never thought about There's that. nothing to explain. A lot yeah. of people will, there's a couple guys explaining that he lifts his stick up, you know, on the two and the floor, he doesn't hit the hi hat, you know, in unison with the, snare drum of the two and the four, mm-hmm. which is very you know, common and normal. And that's kind of a stylistic tick of Charlie Watts, but that's easy to explain, but that's it. And yet, if you look up how to play like Neil Peart, there are like probably like 35,000 videos of guys in their bedrooms playing flawless versions of Tom Sawyer. Exactly. Because or John you can Bonham. Learn, or, because you yeah. can learn that. But Charlie, yeah. there's nothing to learn. It's just, you have to live it. You have to, it's, it's about a commitment to, to the thing, you know? Yeah. I don't think that you're born with it. I think you're born with the openness, openness to accept it. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, no one's born yeah. writing poetry, but to become a great poet, you know, you immerse yourself in it and you learn from other people and you keep your ears open and, you know, and you don't get impressed by, you know, flash and, and, and sizzle over substance. You know, you realize that the competition is, not, first of all, that it's not a competition and the concept of who's the best really is not relevant. If that's the question you're asking, you know, you don't really belong in the conversation because, oh, but who's the best drummer? What difference does it make? Who's the best Rolling Stones drummer is the question you need to be asking. Yeah, there's no doubt that he does not. It just, he doesn't care. Like he cares about a lot of things, but he does not get caught up in those types of like things. He he does All he cares about is doing his thing and, and being Charlie Watts and n- none of the other superficial stuff matters. Yeah, so. he doesn't have what I call the suburban jock 
mentality of virtuosity, you know, yeah, which true. is how many notes you can play per measure. And, you know, there are 30 guitar players and 100 drummers that we can name off the tops of our heads that are all about that. And Charlie is about the song. He knows it's his job to put the song over. It's his job to put the band over. It's his job to make the singer sound great. Yeah. And, and that's it. You have to give up some of your ego when you come through the door. There's a zen to all of this. Hmm. And, yeah. and yet he's the guy that gets largely the most sustained applause at every Stone show these days. Yeah, he's kind of like a beloved member of the group where I, I think people relate to him and just like they have a connection to him. Just as this solid, he's just a, a sweetheart of a guy. Yeah, and he's put up with Mick all these years, and that deserves its own kind of you yeah. know, award. Um, yeah, but he's the glue. I think people know that longtime fans know he's the guy. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Well, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and then take it on home here, and we can wrap up on that and uh, some other books you've written. I mean, you're a... You're an author, my friend. You've you've got quite a few books under your belt. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of what, what I do. I always only ever wanted to be a writer and a musician. And, um, I don't know, somehow I made it work. It's kind of unbelievable. I'm a very fortunate cat. Yeah. So, yeah, Sympathy for the Drummer, Why Charlie Watts Matters is obviously why we're here, my most recent book. And uh, it's available wherever uh, books are sold on Amazon and whatnot. Although I, it's tough times, but I, I strongly encourage people to uh, support their local independent bookstores if you can find it online from an independent bookseller um i mean me i make the same amount of money i don't care but i really should support your independent local bookstores yeah. it's very important um but I, I got here through a very odd route my first book was called i have fun everywhere i go um i used to work for high times magazine the, the marijuana magazine yeah um cool. this is after i had worked for uh um penthouse magazine and some girl <laughs> magazines is after um i dropped out of film school i sort of sort of was having this kind of dual career working for kind of sleazy magazines which i don't know it's, i just found work and they accepted me and it worked and turned into a nice career and on the other hand i was playing these punk rock bands that were kind of catching on and we were playing uh all over the world berlin paris like tokyo like i said and just trying to, to balance these things and you know i'm uh, still making records uh mikeedison.com please visit me i'm gonna have some new stuff and some surprises of course right now the whole world is on hold um yeah so everything's a little weird right now um but yeah mikeedison.com please visit me and there's lots of writing and there's videos and um you know i've I, uh it, it's great it's really hard to you know make it as, as an artist especially um you know, in the 21st century, you know, people seem to think content should be free. Uh, and I feel bad for, um, you know, it's weird, Bart. It got easier to make music over the years. Now everybody's got GarageBand or a laptop or, you know, when I, you can make a record sitting at your kitchen table. Um, and we have computers. I mean, geez, I mean, yeah. imagine, you know, you know, Charles Dickens scratching it out with a quill pen. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I came up, uh, we went to recording studios that were, you know, large and expensive and difficult to use. There was no internet, and just to get a gig at the corner bar meant having to go there and wait for the guy to show up. And if yeah, the guy really. didn't show up, you'd have to go back another night. And it was it was a different world. And I think all of this um, kind of flows into um, this book, "Sympathy for the Drummer," uh, is that like this kind of old world experience that just isn't there. I mean, I'm a dinosaur. I freely admit it. <laughs> you know, these jobs I used to have, like. Um, you know, writing for dirty magazines and uh, playing the drums of the kind of punk rock bands I used to play for, these jobs don't exist anymore. Yeah. 
but they may, definitely made what I do now much more powerful and, and stronger for knowing it. And hopefully, um, you know, in the same way that like the Rolling Stones are connected to a very, very important past. And I really kind of fear time when people, uh, my, my niece told me, you know, she's, uh, couldn't, um, name a single Elvis Presley song. That really kind of broke my heart. Yeah. You know, she's, you know, I said, she's 16. I said, you can't name a single Elvis song. And she just sort of shrunk and said, hey, it's not my generation. Um, hmm, she's, that's uh, interesting. couldn't name a song. It's like, when's the first generation that's going to come that's never heard of Bugs Bunny? <laughs> it, it, this kind of thing's horrifying yeah, me. But really? I think the Rolling Stones will last forever. And I'll they tell will. you why. And I think because the rhythm and the, and the blues and the, and, the, and the sleaze and the rock and the roll and the drugs and the fashion and the sex and everything that they traffic in, everything that has made them so great, it will definitely go out of fashion. It will come in and out of fashion, but it will never go out of style. It's yeah. so built on such a primitive instinct. It really comes from the heart, not the hands. It really comes from, from the hips. You know, it really is. I mean, it's about sex. Let's be honest. I mean, yeah. when you listen to the Rolling Stones, you want to dance, and the dance floor is where the revolution always begins, and that's mm. why the Rolling Stones will never fade away. Beautifully put. That's a great ending. Uh, everyone can go to mikeedison.com. That's e d i s o n. Mikeedison.com. And uh, again, thank you, Mike. And I want to give a big shout out again to Don McCauley, who's always just a great yeah, friend man. of the show and friend to both of us and just a great guy in general. Don, so. Don's enthusiasm and encouragement has been incredible. So yep. Thank you, Don. And thank you, Bart, for having me and for everybody who's listening. You know, drummers, we're, we're a breed apart. You know, we are. Never forget, no one dances to the guitar solo. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're the best. That keeps coming up in episodes where people say <laughs> that they're, and it's so true. There's something special about drummers. So um, I'm glad that you're, you're echoing that point today. Damn straight. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> thank you, Bart. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning. This is a Gwyn Sound Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>